the early years of my relationship with my wife Annie were wonderful. She was warm, intelligent, fun. Best of all, she laughed at all my jokes. However, as the years went on, things began to change. Annie was still warm, intelligent and fun, but she began to stop laughing at my jokes. And I could not work out what was going on. The jokes, after all, were as good as ever. In fact, they hadn't changed a bit. But somehow, in their repeated retelling, they had lost their punch. Well, familiarity breeds contempt, we are told. And we have a similar problem uh, with the parables of Jesus, if we've uh, heard them a few times. Like a good joke, parables make their punch from the unexpected twist at the end. They catch us by surprise. And like a joke, if they are told again and again, there's a danger that they can lose some of that impact upon us. So for those of us who have heard this or other parables a number of times before, we will need to work a little bit harder to retain or to regain the initial impact that uh, Jesus wants for us, to let them disturb and challenge us. Tom Wright usefully uses another analogy for parables. Hold up a mirror to her child, he says. And you'll notice how their expression shifts from smiles and giggles to a growing recognition that it is their movements in the reflection staring back at them. As if to say, that's me. I know uh, our youngest daughter, Mariam, is just over a year and when she first saw a mirror, she would point at it and giggle and then go, brother. (laughs) Not quite click that it was her pointing back at her. And so too, as we look at parables, we need to move from identifying the characters as them, someone over there, to begin to recognise ourselves in the story. That recognition can be affirming or it can be disturbing. But, the, but it should linger with us and not leave us unchanged. Now this morning as we look at the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son in um, Luke 15, um, as so often in Luke, this parable does not come in isolation. Often in Luke, the parables come, come in sets of three, three related parables. And it is as we compare and contrast that group of three that we begin to understand the story. And this uh, case is no exception. The other two parables are, uh, are given at the beginning of chapter 15. Verse 4 to 7 is the parable of the lost sheep in which we see a farmer's joy on locating the one out of a hundred sheep that went astray. And the second parable is the parable of the lost coin, verses 8 to 10, in which we see the joy of a woman on finding her lost savings. Both these parables are interpreted for us, unlike the parable of the lost son. Verse 6 and 7. Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons 
who do not need to repent. Or again, verse 9 and 10, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over every sinner who repents. So it's not hard to see then why the NIV has chosen to label this parable the parable of the lost son. That theme of rejoicing over what was lost is clearly there, isn't it? The parable ends, verse 31. We had, sorry, verse 32. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So these three parables are tied together by the joy of recovering something very precious that was lost. They show us God's heart for religious outsiders. Finding them, reconnecting with them is the driving passion behind everything that God does in the world. As Luke 19.10 puts it, the purpose of the Son of Man, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That is God's heartbeat. That is what God is doing, whether that be in Oxford or Uganda or Nepal or wherever. That is what God is doing in the world. And the extent to which we can enter into that joy in an Uh, in a natural, non-artificial way is the extent to which we have connected and understood the heart of the Father. Now while the parable of the lost son is well known, it's not particularly well named because there are two lost sons in this parable, a younger one and an older one. The lostness of the younger one is legendary. It's outward and it's, 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 it's obvious. But the older son is also lost. His lostness is an inner one. It's a quiet rebellion. But it's there. In fact, these two characters have been carefully constructed by Jesus to reflect back to his audience. On one hand, we have the um, Pharisees who would identify with this older son. Hard-working, dutiful, respectable, Um, but cold. And then there's a group of social and religious uh, outcasts who would connect with the younger son. These were verse 1 and 2 tell us uh, tax collectors who had about the same social standing as a Nazi collaborator in World War II France. And sinners, not meaning those overtly immoral but more meaning the non-religious those who had uh, perhaps had time for Jesus, but no time for institutional religion, with uh, the synagogue, with its endless traditions, rules and regulations. They were outsiders, as it were, to the religious establishment of the day. And let's consider those two uh, sons together. Firstly, the youngest, uh, more rebellious son. Verse 12, he says to his father, Give me my share of the inheritance. Or in other words, Dad, I wish you would drop dead so I can get my hands on your money. It was basically as blunt as that. And the surprising, the amazing thing is, his father gave it to him. Without a quibble, without a word of rebuke, he divided his estate in half. Half for the youngest son, half for the older son. 
That is why later he would say to the older son, everything I have is yours. The inheritance belonged entirely now to the older son, what was left. The younger son then, uh, shortly afterwards, sells his share of the farm, packs up his money and without as much as a thank you or a goodbye, heads off into the sunset where he lives it up. Parties big time in a faraway land. But after each short-lived high, he finds himself a little emptier until both he and his money are completely spent. And that's the way I'm afraid it always is when we live uh, for the moment, when we do what we want, when we want. As Bono uh, put it in uh, a song, you too, you gave, you gave me what I wanted, but it wasn't what I wanted. What we grasp for does not ultimately satisfy. C.S. Lewis described our addictions and indulgences as an increasing desire for something less and less satisfying. That is the nature of sin. It promises us autonomy, it promises us fulfilment and happiness right now, but it cannot deliver. It leaves us ultimately empty and disillusioned. C.S. Lewis goes on, it's no good asking God to make you truly happy apart from himself. There is simply no such thing. True happiness, as the songs we were singing this morning, is only found in a real intimate relationship with God where he, not we, set the agenda. Now, when we get in the wrong place, as this younger son ended, it doesn't really matter how we got there. The important thing is when we're there that we stick up our hands, swallow our pride and uh, get back to where we once belonged, to quote the Beatles. And this is what the younger son demonstrates for us in verse 16. There he was, starving and feeding pigs. Now that is about as degrading as it gets for a Jewish rich kid flopping out the pigs. Verse 17, he comes to his senses and he says, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Here is a man who is not just a little bit embarrassed about his sin or even a little humbled by it. Here is a man who is genuinely broken by it, who is willing to go back to his father with egg all over his face and say, whatever the consequences, father, please take me back. I was wrong. So he limps home. He doesn't skip home. True repentance is never easy. If you think, well, I'll just repent next week, you're kidding yourself. True repentance is not easy. It requires a genuine brokenness and it hurts. There have been times in my life where I have done things of which I am deeply ashamed. And there have been times when I have been broken before God over it. And it has hurt for months afterwards. True repentance 
is never easy. But it is absolutely essential for reconnecting with the Father. It's essential for beginning a relationship with the Father, but it is also essential for continuing in a relationship with the Father. That posture of repentance needs to run through right all the way through our lives. So for those of us who have been believers for some time, it's useful to ask ourselves, when was the last time that we really repented? When we were broken over our sin or our selfishness or our folly. It is the younger son who reconnects with his father. It's strange as we come in repentance to God feeling that we have really blown it, that we are as far away from God as we could ever imagine, that paradoxically that is when we are closest to our father. Before the younger son here in the story can get out his plea to be taken back as a slave, his father has already run to him, embraced him and ordered a banquet. Ask an African, or an East African at least, what is the most striking thing about this story. And chances are they will tell you it is the father, that he runs to his son. In East Africa, much uh, where I work, much uh, as in the days of Jesus, older men don't run. They sit, they discuss, they dispense wisdom, they are honoured and revered, but they do not run especially not run around waving their hands like little children. But this is what the father does. He is overjoyed to get his son back. I was thinking of a quote for the father. I could only come up with the Spice Girls. I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. He wanted his son back. And it was that, that heart of passion that aches for his son that he really wanted him back. That's our father. He is passionate about reconnecting with anyone who will come back to him. Absolutely passionate. And he won't stand on airs and graces. He will run to embrace us, whatever the neighbours think. But then there is the eldest son. If the younger son had lived by the script of uh, have fun, the older son had lived by the script of be good. The younger son had ran, uh, run away from his father. The eldest son had simply drifted away. He had lived in his father's house all this time, but his heart had drifted away from his father. Both sons were lost. Both had missed the heart of their father. The older son feels hard done by and overlooked. Just look at verse 28 again. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. The, older, so the father leaves the party to come out to win over his older son also. But the older son says, All these years I have been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Come in and celebrate, said the father, but he could not. The youngest son was willing to come back as a slave. The oldest son had been treating himself like one for years. 
his heart was cold and he had become uncomfortably numb. Maybe we can see some of the older brother in ourselves also. Perhaps we find it hard to really rejoice when we see God's hand of blessing on another church which doesn't have its theology as neat and compact as ours or whose methodology is a little bit suspect. Or maybe we find it hard to believe uh, that, that, that God can really use us, that, that somehow he expects us to be more beautiful, that we find it easier to be serious than to really enter into celebration in an unhindered way. Or maybe we have just become comfortably numb, so that while we are good and dutiful and respectable Christians, if we're honest, a burning passion to reconnect lost people with God is not what really grips us. We're good, we're respectable, but we have missed the heart of the Father. The Father longs for this Son to repent also, to reconnect with his heart of passion for lost people. You might be familiar with uh, the, the film Sideways, Two friends take a break in the Californian wine valleys just before one of, them's, uh, one of the friends' uh, wedding coming up in a week time, week's time. They spend a fairly drunken, raucous week uh, around the wine valleys of California, establishing relationships with women and breaking them, some spluttering to ignite. After the wedding, the other friend, the one who wasn't married, returns to the valley a few months later and he goes back to knock on the door of uh, the woman that he had failed to really hit things off with. Throughout the movie there's a sense of are they going to get together or won't they? And they somehow just can't quite put it together. And he drives up this motorway on a windy, wet winter's day, goes up to her apartment and knocks on the door and the movie ends. We're left hanging. Did they connect or had she moved on? We don't know. And that is the way how this parable ends. The father is knocking on the door of the oldest son but we're not sure how he responds. Maybe it's harder for a Pharisee, for the older brother, to admit his need than it is for a prodigal. Maybe there's a need to be broken for the older son as well. Now whether we more readily identify with the Pharisee, the older brother, or with the prodigal, the younger brother, I think Henri Nguyen in his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, was right to suggest that neither son is the focus of this parable. I think the par- this parable is more, would be more correctly entitled The Parable of the Outlandish Father because it is the father and his response to his sons that is the, uh, the heart of this parable. And Henri Nguyen goes on to point out that what, we, what the parable is really about is that we are to become the father. We are to move on from identifying with either the younger son or the older son and mature to become the father. Um, the songs that we picked this morning seemed incredibly appropriate for this parable, especially given that they were chosen for another parable. 
but uh, God in his grace is good and, but, but I think that idea of making us a channel of, of God's peace is actually what this parable is that as we enter into the joy of the Father we are able to relate to those difficult people the prodigals and the Pharisees around us in a way that graces them and refreshes them the father aches for both his sons both for the rebellious outsider and for the stuck in the mud insider both need to encounter God's grace afresh the prodigal to know forgiveness the Pharisee to know that he is truly loved without any need to prove himself trace an act of grace to the end an undeserved act of kindness trace it through a relationship and it will always lead someone back closer to God similarly trace an act of ungrace a harsh word unacceptance indifference discouragement through a relationship and it will inevitably lead someone further away from God It is as simple as that, Philip Yancey claims. As we learn to treat others with grace, to give as we have been given, we become the father in this parable, able to long and yearn for the prodigal without coercing or manipulating, and able to go out to the the older brother, to win him over, to instil in him a heart of joy, again without manipulating or coercing. That, I think, is the heart of the parable of the outrageous father.